Well, if you were in Bible class, you already know that we're looking at the prophet Habakkuk. We've uh, made it uh, more than halfway through the minor prophets and have come to a prophet with a strange name and yet says some very relevant things to our lives today. Uh, From Habakkuk, we have several passages that live in our memory and live in Scripture from the New Testament as well. Uh, For example, uh, Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture is found in chapter 3, verse 2, where our plea to God is that in wrath may you remember your mercy. I love that. But today we're looking at Habakkuk chapter 2, the first four verses, and this uh, reading ends with a passage that was especially used by the Apostle Paul several times, quoted word for word a couple of times, and then alluded to at other times in his writings. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the Word of God, as delivered through his faithful servant, Habakkuk. Habakkuk has just asked God a question, and he's going to wait for the answer. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he, God, will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them. But the righteous live by their faith. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Monty. Appreciate Monty stepping in for Brian today. Brian's been fighting a cold all week. Wasn't sure he could sing today. It's great to have Monty uh, come up and uh, take over. Well, a long, long time ago in a land far, far away, a little boy became king. Now, when he became king, I'm sure a lot of people didn't expect much. Because after all, not only was he just a boy, but he didn't come from the most sterling of families. In fact, his grandfather, Manasseh, had been a king for decades, and he was the worst king that had ever ruled over the land. He was a king who had totally abandoned the worship of God. He had instituted the worship of all kinds of false gods and idols, including the despicable practices that went along with their worship. And Manasseh, in fact, had even offered one of his own sons as a human sacrifice to some idol. Well, when Manasseh finally died, his son Ammon took over, And he wasn't much better. Ammon only ruled for two years, and it might let you know what kind of guy he was to let you know that his servants assassinated him. And so that left Josiah, the boy king, 
to assume control of the country in the year 640 B.C. at the ripe old age of eight. Well, you might say, well, how can an eight-year-old rule a country? Well, he couldn't. And it's to the credit of his good mother and to some great advisors that he had who taught him and shaped him and ran the country for him as he grew and matured into that role, that Josiah grew up to be a really good man. He grew up to be a godly man. And that is why those of you who know your Old Testament history know Josiah as good king Josiah. It had been a while since a good king had risen. And now here he was. He was a strong man and a man definitely committed to the ways of the Lord. Things that he did, he restored the temple. The temple had fallen into disrepair and wasn't used much anymore. But Josiah, through the calling of God, said, no, we are going to bring worship back to Jerusalem. We are going to return worship back to the proper object of worship, the Lord God Almighty. And so he began to repair the temple, and as they were repairing it, they found a book buried under the dust and the rubble that was there. And they began reading this book, and it was a book that described the covenant that God had made with his people, the Israelites. Now, some people believe that this book was actually the same book that we have in our Bibles called Deuteronomy. Maybe, maybe not. Don't know for sure. But it definitely was a book that did describe who God was and how we were supposed to worship him. And whenever the book was read to Josiah, he was cut to the heart. He was convicted. He said, we need to do these things. And so therefore, he instituted these reforms. He got rid of the foreign gods. He got rid of all the idols. He started the worship services in the temple again. He even reinstituted the Passover feast. Now, isn't that amazing that the Passover that, that, that feast that we identify so strongly with the people of God that they had forgotten about it, hadn't been celebrated for years. And yet Josiah put it back in place. And Josiah's reign was blessed. It was a good time to be a person, a citizen of the country of Judah. And they were proud of their king, that he was a man leading them back to God. But for reasons that we don't know, that we'll never really understand, there's ideas, but the reasons have been lost to history. No one really recorded why. Josiah decided to get involved in the world events around him. Now, it could be that he felt like that since they were worshiping God and serving him, that just as God had helped his small army of his little people in the past slay the giants, that perhaps God would go with him and help him as well. We don't know. We'll never know. But Josiah decided he was going to play with the big boys. Now, here I've got to give a little bit of history. I hope there's some more history buffs out there. 
I love history, and I know for the rest of you it can be kind of boring. But at the time Josiah came to rule, the, the country that was controlling the world was Assyria. We've talked a lot about Assyria and Nineveh in our study of the, of the minor prophets. Well, they were the ones who had been in control, but about this time their control began falling away. It was being chipped away by countries such as Babylon and the Medes were being able to defeat the Assyrian armies on the battlefield. And therefore, as Assyria began to lose its grip on all these smaller countries around, well, they were able to prosper more. And that's one reason, if you want to look at secular reasons, why Judah was was at such a height during the period of Josiah, was Assyria had so much going on themselves, they couldn't really give attention to these little nations, and they just kind of let them do whatever they wanted to do. Well, as Assyria began to fail as a world power, their allies, the Egyptians, decided it was to their advantage to go up and help the Assyrians fight the Babylonians. And so the Egyptian army got all ready, and under the Pharaoh, they were marching up with their chariots and everything up through the land of Judah to go meet with the Assyrians and fight the Babylonians. Josiah got this idea that I can stop that. I can take my army out, and I can fight the Egyptians I can slow them down, I can stop them, and maybe that way then the Babylonians will then, you know, favor us. Uh, We'll be on their side. Well, he took his army out. They went to the valley of Megiddo, which lives on in history now in infamy as Armageddon. If you ever go to the uh, Holy Land, make sure you go visit the valley of Megiddo. It's a really awe-inspiring place. It's a long, flat valley that is the perfect place for a battle. And so many battles were fought in that valley that probably hundreds of thousands of men have died right there. And amongst those were the army of Josiah and Josiah himself. The Egyptians routed the army. When word came back to Jerusalem, they didn't know what to do. What is this? We've been godly people. We were serving God. We've done everything. Look at Josiah. Josiah was so good. Why did you let this happen, God? Well, when Josiah died, they put his son, Jehoahaz, in his place. But that only lasted as long as the, until the Egyptians came back. And they said, we don't want this guy. We'll put our own guy in place, Jehoiakim. And they said, Jehoiakim, you're going to be the king, and you do exactly what we tell you to do. And he did. And things unraveled fast. All the the reforms that Josiah had put in place were gone. Idols were brought back into the holy area around the temple. They were set up again, and the people were told, you need to worship the idols. Heavy taxes were imposed. People were forced into slave labor. And the prophets of God were persecuted. Those prophets such as Habakkuk who stood up and said, wait a minute, we're going the wrong direction, were put in prison and beaten. Now, the reason I wanted to give you that historical background is so you can understand that when Habakkuk cries out to God, he is crying out from the depths of his soul. Bad things are going on. And he doesn't understand why. And listen to his complaint. 
that he cries out to God, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you're not listening. And why do I cry out to you violence? And you do nothing. You don't save us. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there in your life, but that's where Habakkuk is right now. Come on, God. Look at what's going on. Look at how everything's falling apart. And I keep calling out to you, and you act like you don't hear me, and you're not doing anything. Well, the Lord did answer Habakkuk, but it was not the answer that Habakkuk wanted. You know, so much of this I can identify. Can you, can you identify with the times when you cried out and there seemed to be nothing there? And then finally when something did happen, uh-uh, that's not what I wanted. God answers him. He says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to take care of this situation. I'm getting a group of people together, and they're going to come down and take care of the problem. They're going to take care of the problem of all this wickedness and the unfaithfulness of my people. Don't worry. I'm sending them. And Habakkuk says, oh, good. Who are you sending? He says, the Babylonians. Habakkuk says, whoa, wait a minute. That's worse than the, you know, how can the Babylonians you know, they're awful, they're cruel, they're ungodly. How is it, God, that you can send a wicked people like this to help people that are more righteous than they? One thing that Habakkuk teaches me is to be careful with my prayer language, okay? Because so many times we can accuse God of things that are not true, we can ask for God for things that we don't really think that we think we need and we really don't. And we can give ourselves titles that we don't want to wear. Because here Habakkuk has said, we are more righteous than they. And God is going to jump on that and he's going to give an answer. So after Habakkuk has given this what he feels like is the perfect question to God and God is kind of in a dilemma and he's got God where he wants him and God doesn't know what to say to him. God comes back and gives an answer. The Lord answered me he sa and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, make it so big that someone running past it can read it. If, if he were talking today, he'd say, put it on a billboard Make it so big that someone driving 80 miles an hour can read it. I know the speed limit is 75, but that means you drive 80, right? Okay. No guilty ones out there? Okay. Anyway, make it so, so big that, that just sailing down the road, there it is. Well, what is the vision? What is it that you want me to tell the people? This is what it is. I will do something in my appointed time. And if you think I'm taking too long, wait. In fact, isn't it interesting? He says, if it seems to tarry, wait for it. <laughs> Our grandchildren are always saying that when it seems like things are taking too long. They wait for it. Wait for it. Just because I haven't done it in your time doesn't mean that I'm not going to do it. And I will take care of things. 
And then he sort of chides Habakkuk and he says, you know, proud people act like you. Their spirit is not right in them. But you say you're righteous? Let me tell you something. Righteous people live by faith. Now that word from Habakkuk is so relevant to us today. What did it mean for Habakkuk to hear God say, Habakkuk, if you are a righteous man, live by your faith. Well, he was telling Habakkuk, you say you believe in me. Well, part of believing in me is that I am the God who is in control. I am the God who is all-powerful. Live like it. You just continue in your way, and if you can't understand what I'm doing, you chalk that up to the fact that you can't understand me, that you are to live by your faith, you are to wait, and you are to remain faithful to me. Now, that word translates really well into today, doesn't it? What does it mean for us today to live by our faith? What does it mean to put our faith into such action that it shapes our lives? Well, part of it means exactly what it meant to Habakkuk, that we are to live our lives as if God is really in control, that God is moving, that He is active. You know, there are so many times in our lives we come to kind of forks in the road, and we can go our way and do things the way we want to do them, or we can say, you know what? I don't know what's going on right now, but I'm going to choose to remain faithful to God. I can't explain why. I can't explain what's going to happen. I can't tell you what he's going to do, but I am going to lean on him and I am going to depend on him. And you can't really explain that to anyone. Back in my younger years, we used to talk about faith as taking a leap of faith. Does anyone know that terminology? You take a leap of faith. Yeah, I know there was a bad movie made about that. Actually, it was pretty entertaining. But anyway, but, but that's all we're talking about. We're talking about the theology, that, that there comes a point that, that you've got to decide, am I going to try to figure this out? Am I going to get upset about God? Am I going to feel bitter and, and, and angry because things aren't going the way I want them to go? Or am I going to turn this way and trust that God is God and that he is in charge and that I will follow him? To live by faith today is to trust that God loves us enough that he wrapped himself in flesh and came down and lived on this earth, lived a life just like he wants all of us to live and yet we are incapable of doing so that he hung on the cross and died for us. Now, I want to tell you something. In many ways, that makes no sense at all. You know, I've heard people kind of just snicker at that. What do you mean? Some guy gets hung on a cross 2,000 years ago and dies, and that's supposed to matter to me, and that really affects my life today in 2013? How is that? Well, I want to tell you, you can't explain it. But when you come to that fork in the road, whether or not you're going to just go ahead and live life the way you want to, or you're going to accept the fact that God loves us enough to die for us, that he died on the cross, that he was resurrected from the dead, and that gives me hope, and you choose to go that way, that is living by faith.
to believe that when you went down into the water and were baptized, that you met God there. You don't have any proof. You know, you don't have any kind of, of tablet or oracle or something he gave to you and said, I met you in the water of your baptism. It's by faith. Paul said that. Paul said that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death and you were brought up out of the water, just like his resurrection, to live a new life. And in that process, you have received his spirit that now lives in you. Now, we can choose to live by that and to live that out by faith or not. Living by faith means that when we gather around this table, we truly believe that God is closest to us of any time of our lives. That here we sit with him in communion and that as we take that bread and drink that cup, that we are truly taking the effects and the power of the body and blood of Christ into ourselves. That is to live by faith. To live by faith means that we accept the morality that God lays out for us in his word. I've been thinking lately as I'm getting older, you know, how many things have changed. That's what we old people like to do as well. It's not like it used to be. And some of those things are really good. And one thing that has just amazed me is that I carry around in my pocket a little computer that probably has more computing power than NASA had whenever they sent a man to the moon back in the 60s, you know. And on this little bitty device, I can find pictures of people all over the world. I can ask it any question. I don't have to know anything anymore. I just ask Siri. She tells me, right? Isn't it amazing that I got... But you know what? Even though all that technology has changed and things are so different, something that I've also noticed that has changed is our society's regard for the way of God and how we live our lives. What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is evil? You young folks, if you want to show people your faith, you will show it by the way you live in your lives through your morality. Is your morality shaped by what God says or by what you read on the internet or see in the movies or hear your friends talk about? Which way are you going to go? Are you going to reason it out for yourself and say, well, I don't see what's wrong with this, even though God's word says this is dangerous and this is not good. But you say, well, it looks okay to me. Other people are doing it. Their lives seem to be going okay. I'm going to go that way. We come to these forks in the road and decide, am I going to live by my faith? Or am I going to just try to work it out for myself? And Habakkuk stands as a sentinel before us and saying, let me tell you what God said. God said, if you want to be a righteous person, you will always choose the way of your faith, that you will live by faith. Now, that passage was so important that the apostle Paul kind of lifted it up and made it a part of his theology. But when he did so, he changed the accent mark. He embraced all that Habakkuk said 
that we are called to be righteous people by living by our faith. But as he said it, he didn't say it like Habakkuk did. Habakkuk said, the righteous shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul, standing on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and the salvation that is now offered and the forgiveness and the mercy of God, said it this way, and the righteous shall live by faith. Because we choose to turn toward God, because we trust Him, God will give us life. He will give us life now, and He will give us life forever. Habakkuk calls us to make the choice, as does the Apostle Paul. Which way are we going to live? Lean not upon your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Because if you truly want to be a righteous person, you will live by your faith. It's our choice. Let's stand and sing together.